It's a chilly winter day in August 1987 and nestled within the serene surroundings of Alinda, a suburb located in the Dandenong Ranges of Victoria, stands a large white fibro house. The residence boasted 12 bedrooms where children of all ages resided, enveloped by a canopy of trees, native shrubs and rolling hills. But despite its quaint appearance and many rooms, the building was not a school, camping ground, nor a family home. The children staying there were not even related and hid a far more disturbing truth. This unsettling truth came to light during a police raid and rescue operation at the Alinda compound where authorities uncovered a shocking revelation. The children, all sporting matching haircuts and attire, had been illegally adopted amidst allegations of harrowing child abuse. This marked the exposure of a cult known as the family. Singing like the Von Trapp family, living out Anne's fantasy of, in her, her thoughts, I'm sure it was something like an Aryan race. At the helm of this disturbing cult was Anne Hamilton Byrne, a former yoga instructor who deludedly believed herself to be the reincarnation of Christ. Under her malevolent influence, up to 28 children were subjected to a nightmarish existence. Their hair was bleached and cropped uniformly while they endured beatings and were even administered LSD. Of all the crimes that I investigated, she is the most evil person that I've ever met. The enduring repercussions of the family are deeply unsettling. Many of the child victims bear lifelong psychological scars with several attempting suicide during their time within the cult or following their escape. But what are the perplexing motivations that drive cult leaders like Anne Hamilton Byrne to exert control, manipulate and inflict abuse upon vulnerable individuals? What can be said about the differences between male and female cult leaders? And is rehabilitation truly possible for the victims of cults like Burns? That's on today's episode of Motive and Method. Welcome to Motive and Method. I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet. And I'm Tim Watson Munro. On today's episode, we're talking to Chris Johnston, who wrote the book called The Family, about Anne Hamilton Byrne and the cult that she developed, who were known as The Family. So today we're going to be talking about how that cult developed, and particularly I'm interested in hearing about a female as a cult leader, which is really unusual. I can't think of any other cults led by females, can you, Tim? No, I can't. And this went on until there was a police raid up at Lake Eildon, and uh, the children were rescued after a couple of them escaped and notified the local authorities. I'm very much looking forward to speaking to Chris. It's a fabulous book and a great expose of what can happen, even in respectable Melbourne. Cults fascinate me. They always have done. And I think particularly the family, and largely because the cult leader was a woman in that case. So I was wondering if you could talk us through how this particular cult actually began and developed and how Hamilton Byrne actually, you know, became this huge cult fi- figure in Melbourne that you describe. Yeah, well, it's so interesting that she's a she. I mean, there's there's not there's not very many female cult leaders in history. It's it's normally a male thing. Well, it started with yoga. 
as many things do, it started innocently enough as a sort of yoga. She was a yoga teacher and she was an early adopter of yoga practices, but she had an extremely dysfunctional childhood and she sort of ticked all the boxes and all the hallmarks of your classic narcissistic, psychopathic, self-centered, greedy cult leader. Yeah. Uh, The impoverished childhood related to being raised in rural Victoria. Yeah, Uh, that was part of it. There was impoverishment. Was there emotional abuse as well? Um, I'm not sure if there was an emotional abuse, but there was a, there was a, a definitely an amount of sort of brainwashing. Her mother was crazy, and in fact died in a in a in a in a mental mental hospital, an asylum. Was she formally diagnosed? You know, no, she wasn't diagnosed. Okay. It was just, it just was crazy sort of, simpliciter. Yeah, she was towards the end of her mother's life. The mother was diagnosed as a as a schizophrenic, a paranoid schizophrenic, in fact. And she spent long periods in and out of care. And when she wasn't in care, when she was at home in Gippsland in sale with the family, she was full of delusions and full of stories about the fringe end of spiritualism and gurus, basically. So this obviously had a huge impact on Hamilton Byrne as a young child who was almost indoctrinated into this way of thinking. Although, correct me if I'm wrong, I see her, I agree with you. She's a psychopath. She's uh, clearly intelligent. And most cult leaders or cults established because they have enablers. And in her case, she was enabled, as I recall, by a psychiatrist who worked in Kew I'll start that again. She was enabled by a psychiatrist who worked in Kew who apparently was uh, using hallucinogens as part of his therapeutic model. And there was also a prominent lawyer, wasn't there, Chris, who was part of that enabling process. So she had entree and cachet with Melbourne society that I suspect gave her an additional degree of credibility. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's spot on. I mean, she had a, a sort of small army of enablers. <laughs> But all this this process took 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 a long time from the dysfunctional childhood to yoga to cult. Um, so how did she get there? How did she go from being this child who was being raised by somebody who was later diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic? She, what was her journey through adolescence into adulthood that led her down that you know the particular path that she followed? That's a very good question, and it, and it's one that we couldn't answer definitively because records of her life um, are sort of absent for for quite long periods in those in those early days. But it's clear that um, at one point, at at, at a certain point um, post war, she she reinvented herself from a an adolescent from a dysfunctional. Uh, childhood to a to a sort of prominent Melbourne yoga teacher, and as soon as she started the yoga classes, which were in Turak, so a wealthy suburb, where else? <laughs> yeah, and this was in the sixties, just as yoga was becoming popular during that sort of period in Australian history where things were opening up, where liberalism, small L liberalism, was big, where divorce was a new exciting idea where women found that they could leave their 
marriages behind and sort of reinvent themselves. And she found that quite large numbers of wealthy single women were seeking her guidance and not not only yoga but her sort of spiritualism as well um so she's really buying into kind of the counterculture that developed in the 1960s 1970s you know the yoga the alternative lifestyles all of that the kind of hippie lifestyle she's really she's really made for that isn't she and it's really enabling her to to move into the space of you know gathering these followers she's in the right place at the right time exactly yeah that was a much more eloquent way and simpler mm. way of saying what i was trying to say yeah right place right time and the right societal impacts and cultural impacts yeah she I, and she fully exploited that although the people that she was attracting around her weren't the sort of counterculture hippies they were white collar educated professional people wealthy people people with money people from, you know, the good suburbs of Melbourne. And it sort of went from there. And I I I, I think that the the power, the money and the and the sort of new sort of authority that she had got away on her and it just went from there. And then the sort of dysfunction and the delusion from her childhood and the desire to accumulate a family, family in inverted commas, sort of kicked in and she went from there. So do you think that's what drove her then was this desire to have some sort of family that, you know, that she maybe didn't have in her childhood? Is that where this came from? Over to you, Chris. She sounds to me more like an opportunistic psychopath who saw the main chance. Uh, People deferred to her. And with the affliction of time, she became increasingly empowered to the point where She may have believed, she certainly put it out there, that she was the reincarnation of Christ. And, of course, then more vulnerable people join up, which is a common thing with cults I've looked at, that there's always a deity involved somewhere and salvation. And uh, mothers would give up their children. They would be illegally adopted into the family and then to give it credibility, their hair would be all... All their hair would be t- bl- uh, blonde dyed and, and they'd wear short. the same uniforms. Yep. It was like that movie, I don't know if you ever saw it, Chris, The Village of the Damned, where they had these uh, children from outer space who all looked the same. It reminded me very much of that. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much spot on. I think I, I see her as an opportunist as well, albeit an opportunist with with a high degree of sort of uh, narcissism and, and, and sort of control. In, in terms of gathering a family, she had three husbands and her first husband died in the 1950s in a car crash in Bathurst. And he, at the time, was driving back from a Bernardo's home where he and her were planning to adopt a child. And that was the first sign that she was keen on adoption. Um, the adoption never went ahead. The the first husband was dead in the car, and this was at a time where she was where, where she was sort of moving towards the 1960s and moving towards what we now know as the as the cult that she formed. It was a comparatively small cult, though, wasn't it? I mean, beyond the enablers and the acolytes and all the rest of it, I think there was what 28 children ultimately at Eildon who were rescued. It was round about that number, so. 
unlike the Moonies, which went into the tens of thousands, possibly millions, who knows. Hers was a comparatively small cult. But the, the survivors that I've spoken to spoke about the absolute rigid authoritarian control uh, where they lived. There was no outside contact. There would be corporal and emotional punishment for kids just being kids, of, essentially, locked in their rooms, starved of food, belittled and so on. So there was all this mind control going on from a very early age. Yes, there was. Um, there was what I'd describe as extreme uh, abuse, um, physical, emotional, and also and also the, the extreme control that the kids were put under um, in terms of the being tranquilized, was there um, any allegations of sexual abuse? Because that often, I'm not necessarily just thinking the children, but I mean, was sex used as a weapon? Because it often is in cults, isn't it? Not, not really. I'm not, not really. aware of the, it either. Huh? Mm, okay. None of the children were sexually abused, um, but they were they were certainly physically and emotionally, uh, psychologically abused. Um, but she 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 did use her sexuality as a tool especially around gathering male enablers into the network. You were mentioning also the use of medication, tranquilizers, and so on. Yep. So you've got kids who are drugged up. There's no external reference point for them. And, you know, the ones I've spoken to, they said they were just living in purgatory and hell every day. They never knew what would happen, how it would happen, how they would be treated. And they were completely cut off from external society. Yeah, that's right. So there were there were two groups of children. There was one group at Lake Eildon in a in a lake house there, and they were the ones that took the Hamilton Burn surname and had their hair dyed blonde and dressed in the gingham or the or the velvet tracksuits. And then there was a second group of kids who were in cult homes in the Dandenong Ranges. And the ones up in the Dandenongs were mainly the kids of cult adults who were being looked after in sort of several, not looked after in several houses up there. The ones by the lake were, in general, the ones that were taken from the hospitals under the, under the fake adoptions and the, and the theft of the children. I'm really interested in this, actually, because obviously she's enlisted the help of a number of medical professionals, hasn't she? Tim mentioned the psychologist. Well, no, it's a psychiatrist, actually. Sorry, psychiatrist. And then these obviously these people involved in social services um, and hospitals. So Lawyer. A lawyer. Was she particularly targeting these influential people who could assist her in her, whatever her plan was, or was this just a consequence of kind of her position in the Melbourne kind of social scene at the time. No, she she went after them. She she one of her she, she was as Tim said before a very intelligent, um, clever, sinister woman who who gathered all these enablers around her. So people who could do things for her. So a lawyer, a real estate agent, a psychiatrist. So it's premeditated. I, I think so. Yeah. But it gathers its own momentum. I'm sure when she started teaching yoga, she didn't for a minute think she would end up a multimillionaire controlling all these children. And that's why I said earlier the role of enablers is generally very important in terms of establishing these cults. And with her, 
giving her gravitas and credibility. Yeah? For a long time, yep. she was considered to be a worthwhile person in Melbourne. That's right. And, that, and, and that's probably because of one of her key enablers, who was a professor of physics at the University of Melbourne, Dr. Rainer Johnson. He was from Leeds. He, he came over as sort of a marquee signing for, the, for Melbourne Uni to, to work in the physics department and to be the master of Queen's College. And she targeted him very quickly because he was a, a physicist, but by then he was writing books on metaphysics and spiritualism. And she targeted him and he became a sort of entree into Melbourne society and 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 that sort of upper echelon of, of Melbourne, sort of Melbourne life. And academia. And academia, but also a sort of air of respectability. He was also close to the Liberal Party in Melbourne at the time. He was close to the newspaper people. He was extremely influential and he... He gave the group an air of respectability early on, and he was he he, he was doing um, CAE, so Council of Adult Education lectures around Melbourne, talking about metaphysics and spiritualism. But he was he was also sort of actively recruiting at those meetings. For, so if someone for came, if someone came up, yeah. So if someone if he gave a talk on on karma or metaphysics. Um, someone came up to him at the end and said that was very interesting. He would funnel them to her. They were prospects, so they were like town hall meetings in a way. Yeah, um, but got... yeah, they were at generally they were at high school halls. Yeah, actually, yeah. but but the same dynamic. Um, people exactly, go along exactly. And uh, amongst any group like that, you would have some people that have more than a passing interest, the question askers, and uh, yes. they were then, by the sound of it. Uh, focused upon and targeted to become involved. Yes, and wh- one of those question askers eventually became what were called the aunties. So at the Lake House at Lake Eildon, there were a group of women, adult cult members who had been recruited, um, all divorcees, all reasonably wealthy, um, and they their job was to was to look after the kids at the Lake House, which of course they didn't do, but important to remember that these women and these people around her were were victims of Anne as well, very much. I mean, they were they were brainwashed. They were they were on this sort of um, love bombing. I was going to ask um, you about that cycle. Yeah, and so they're victims. Yeah, yeah this love bombing. Um, that's such a common theme, isn't it, with cult leaders too? That's how they draw people in, capture them before the abuse begins. Oh, and dysfunctional, toxic relationships that we've discussed in the past. You know, vulnerable people love to be loved. We all do. and But the amount of attention that love bombers give the victim is quite extraordinary. What form did the love bombing take with these people, Chris? Well, I suppose it played out most specifically with with the kids in the, in the lake house, but also with, with the aunties, this group of three or four women. And it was, and it was along the lines of, "I can save you. I can show you salvation. Work for me now, and you will be free in the afterlife." It's so familiar of so many religions masquerading as cults. Some would say uh, it's the same sort of thing. Or cults <clears throat> masquerading as religions. 
Yeah. Either way. Yeah. Put yeah. off today for what you're going to get in your next life and do as you're told in the meantime. Yeah, but if they exactly. didn't act, and, uh, yes, sorry, you go. Yeah. Uh, well, also, most importantly, don't betray me and don't tell anyone what's going on. Yes. And if they didn't acquiesce, there were very heavy sanctions for these kids. And I can say no names, no pack drill, but with lifelong consequences for ones I've seen. They're highly yeah, traumatised right. right. individuals. That's right. And so it must be said that, I mean, we we've we obviously had a formed reasonably close relationships with some of the survivors. Um, Sarah Moore uh, died sadly just as the just as my book and Rosie Jones documentary was coming out in what was it 2017 or 18 she had seen Rosie's documentary and approved of it she'd seen bits of the book and and approved and was was extremely helpful but her her um her background in this as the sort of leader of the kids in a way and the first one to break away from the confines played played a heavy toll and she she couldn't cope with with life even though she had become a doctor and worked in third world countries trying to save children it just got the better of her in the end and she she died very young and how long did that take because i'm interested in the timeline now between she started these you know these yoga classes she's gathering her her flock, as it, if it were, for want of a better expression. She's getting these children. She's got these professionals working for her. How many years did this, this take place over? So I think we can say the real beginning was in the very early 60s. And then the kids were freed from the Lake Eildon House in 1987. But, you know, there's, there's repercussions still playing out. I mean, people, the, the survivors are still trying to trying to get on with their lives and to and to sort of proceed. There was a class action a couple of years ago. Um, there's still money flying around in in cult assets. There's assets being sold. Anne obviously died just a, a few years ago. It hasn't it hasn't finished. But they had years of indoctrination, didn't they? Decades, some of them. Some of the people trying to now move forward with their lives. But the estate's worth millions, right? There's a lot of money to be uh, claimed, as I understand it. How did it raise millions? Oh, well, people gave her money, gave her properties. Real estate. Um, mainly through real estate and through through tithing. People would pay for her wisdom. And she did a bunch of dodgy property deals over the years this it's not worth millions anymore, but it certainly used to. It wasn't that long ago that it was. Um, and before the class action, they sold a bunch of properties so that they had fewer assets yeah. to to pay out in compo. Um, very clever, very dastardly, very, very bad people. Evil. Now, you met her, right? Or did I misread that? Did, did you yeah, actually I did, meet yeah. her? Yeah, uh, although she was, hev- she was so... De- so deep in dementia at the time that I don't know if it could be classed as a meeting but I did <laughs> I did I did meet her yeah and that that her dementia was um very important actually because it 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 it, it protected her from legal action but having met her I can safely say that she was demented but I think you also said she notwithstanding her age Notwithstanding her cognitive decline, she still had a bit of charisma about her. 
Oh yeah, huge charisma. She was beautifully dressed. She was it was a it was very strange, Tim. We 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 went to the nursing home with permission because we we making the doing the book, we got a bit of help from or a fair bit of help actually from uh, uh, a devotee of hers, a, a follower of hers, a guy called Michael Stevenson Helmer, the nephew of Sir Zelman Cowan, a former Governor General of Australia. And he got involved in our process and um, he took us to see her. I mean, one of the things I really wanted to do during the making of the book was to was to meet her. And you can't just sort of walk into old folks' homes. So we 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 got permission from him and went went with him. And she's lying there on her bed. She's got a a a doll under her arm, tucked under her arm. She's another child. Um, another child. She's eating, if you like, through a straw, so sort of pureed food. And she's being cared um, for by her devotees, isn't she? Some people are still very devoted to her were very devoted to her care. Yeah, so there's people people coming in getting her laundry and people coming to visit her and stuff. But she's sitting there in the room and she's got photos of all the cult kids oh. um around like, you know, if if you're in a room like that, you have photos of your children, right? But she's also got that, but she stole them and orchestrated their abuse. And they're all around the room and then Above her bed is a print of the Last Supper, oh, which which well, that's her. was which was deeply deeply interesting because of mm. course she she portrayed herself as Jesus and she was betrayed in the end by those close to her who told the cops everything and so um, she's she sort of she's sort of inadvertently leading out this this sort of biblical story of betrayal which was a hell of a symbol. Wow. Particularly for a woman who's allegedly dementing. Um, but did she choose to put them there or are these, are these items well, that her know, followers it, It's an extraordinary tale, though, it isn't is. it? It is. It's incredible. Yeah. I, look, I don't know who put them there, but presumably whether or not she put them there herself, I doubt she did, but that's by the by, I think, they, they, they were there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and there yeah, were yeah, also, they, yeah. There were also photos of her in her heyday. Um, playing the harp, um, you know. Another biblical instrument. <laughs> another biblical instrument. Her looking glamorous through the years. How did it all come to an end? Because um, some people did escape, didn't they? And I think that was part of how everything fell apart. Well, there was a police raid, but I'm, I'm interested in what your research showed. Mm. Yeah, so I mentioned Sarah before, Sarah Moore. So there was Sarah and... Uh, a woman called Leanne, and Leanne's cult name was um, Anne. This is the art, is uh, it? Sorry, Anna. No, they that they were both um, teenagers at the time. I this see. is just before the raid. So Sarah is becoming independent within the cult confines and starts leaving the house that she's supposed to be living in. She's at school. She's meeting other people. Um, and one day she invited one of her friends back to the house and Anne hit the roof and threw her out. So Sarah left. To cut a long story short, uh, started talking to Leanne, who I think they're about 16 at the time, um, and said, you should escape and come and meet me on the outside. So 
Leanne tries a couple of times to get through windows, doesn't get anywhere, tries a third time. This is from Lake Eildon, gets through, climbs up through the bathroom window and escapes and is picked up by local residents and taken to the police, the local police, who alert the district police from memory, the sort of the social services police up there. And one thing led to another and... In August 87, the police raided the property and freed the kids. Now, the police had visited there before. There were already some things that they were looking at, like irregularities to do with real estate, certain reports from locals on strange goings-on. There was a school. They'd set up a school, a cult school by then, which interestingly had to be approved by the Victorian Department of Education, and it was. They had The inspectors actually came along and approved it and said it was quite a good school. So Sarah got chucked out and stayed out. Leanne escaped, joined Sarah, went to the cops. I think it was a 60 Minutes piece they did on the family. Might have been Richard Carlton who interviewed her, but I could be wrong. And I was struck at the time about, A, her charisma, her presence on camera. She was highly articulate and very credible. You know, if you if you didn't suspect her of anything, she would come across as very credible. The other thing that struck me was, because it had all come out by then, the complete and utter absence of any remorse or acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Well, that's typical of psychopaths, isn't Psychopath, it? Psychopath, absolutely. But that probably is why she was able to con the education department and I suspect too, Chris, the local neighbours. Because you, you would wonder, you know, all these kids running around, all with blonde hair and the same uniform, if she was my neighbour, it would uh, my antennae would twitch vigorously. But could vigorously. they even see? You know, because I'm imagining the compound where they were kept, or they were quite, you know, they would kind of keep them away from prying eyes, weren't they? Well, it was it was. I mean, all the all the homes and properties that they had were were sort of hidden. So the the Eildon house was under trees beside the lake. It was you know it's in the country. It's quite you know there's a big gate and a long driveway and stuff. Um, so not many people could see that, although the kids did tell stories of being on the lawn and seeing um, houseboats and whatnot on the lake that they, you know, would wonder about. And then, of course, there was the Dandenongs just outside of Melbourne, you know, a bit like the Blue Mountains or something, but the the the, the Melbourne version, and you wouldn't know what goes on up there. I mean, it's, it's, it's forest, state forest. It's all about so, isolation, isn't it? It's all yeah, about... It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, so it was sort of like what, one of the early images that we had when we were thinking about the themes for the book was the, was the, was the sort of um, haunted forest, the, the Wicked Witch and the Innocent Children. And um, that was certainly very true for both Lake Eildon and Mount Dandenong. So after the Eildon raid, that's the, the Dandenong raid or Mount Dandenong raids happened so it was one followed by the other, or how did they get on to the others? The kids from Lake Eildon were freed by the police. By that stage, they were all at high school and several of them were wondering what the hell was going on because they were old enough to sort of figure it out. And then that those disclosures after that led to the sort of dismantling of the Mount Dandenong operations. So there was there was one street up there in Olinda where there were I think three or four cult houses, 
um, and there were a couple of others scattered around. And they had a sort of a temple up there as well. They called it the Santa Nicodin Lodge, which is still there, very spooky place. So, but it was really the it was really the kids from Lake Eildon who were literally freed by the police that sort of led to the dismantling of everything else. But obviously, also at that point, Anne legged it and disappeared. Where did and she then, go? Do we know? Well, she was she was in the United States by that by that time. She had a house in the Catskills near New York. They had two or three properties in Kent in the UK. And there were also properties, we believe, in Hawaii. And so she, but she absconded to the US. She was in the US and the UK, and possibly Hawaii. So, oh, she went to all of them. And how did? So obviously, she was brought back to face charges. How did that all have happened? Well, that was a saga in itself. So Interpol got involved. Victoria Police were involved. Um, Victoria Police were reluctant at first, like the the task force that was set up had to sort of persuade their police bosses that it was a case worth chasing. Which is extraordinary, isn't it, when you think about it? Yeah, it is. She was eventually found through an indiscreet phone call that she made, which was traced to the Catskills house, and the FBI went and got her on behalf of Vigpol. And then she was brought back to Australia to face charges? Then she was put in prison in near New York and eventually through a convoluted legal process to do with extradition laws brought back and with her then husband brought back to Melbourne on a Qantas flight. I imagine she would have been fighting that all the way and given the resources she had to fight it, that would have been quite a legal battle, I imagine, to get her extradited. It was, although bear in mind that the the only charges that they were able to press at the time were minor social security um, uh, adoption uh, forgeries. She wasn't at that point charged with any cruelty or abuse or theft or assault or administering of drugs or anything like that they couldn't they couldn't make those charges stick at the time all unfolded with the passage of time yeah so she yeah. was eventually charged with those extra crimes no never never so never. she only she ever was, faced really very low level yeah five thousand dollar fine and that was it but as the prosecutors and the coppers who bought her back said at least we got her and we we forced the extradition and we got her into court where she said she was guilty. And what about the people that enabled her, these, you know, the lawyers, the psychiatrists, the people in social services who enabled these illegal adoptions? And what about what happened to everyone else? Probably nothing. less. Probably nothing. Less, <laughs> nothing. So the, the lawyer is the sort of Judas figure in the in the tale, Peter Bibby. He rolled over and told the police everything and he was, from memory, charged with very minor forgery offences. The aunties, a couple of the aunties rolled over and told the police everything. The social workers who got into the hospitals and stole the babies, nothing happened. The psychiatrists who were, we haven't mentioned the LSD yet, the the psychiatrists who were funnelling the LSD into the cult from the place in Kew that Tim mentioned, they nothing happened to them either. 
And it raises another interesting question because, as we're all aware, they're now talking about using LSD again in yeah. contemporary real-time Australia as a therapeutic agent, yeah. um, which I find a very interesting proposition, frankly. But then yeah. it was totally illegal. So you had a, a registered psychiatrist and other enablers, enablers giving kids highly potent, dangerous, mind-altering drugs and no charges, which is extraordinary. Well, it was legal until 1975. So, uh-huh. so LSD, it's, ve- it's really interesting actually and it goes towards the sort of climate of the times. So LSD was trialled for psychotherapy in the United States and elsewhere um, and was found to be, you know, reasonably successful in some cases. And then during the Nixon era, obviously, with the war on drugs, everything just shut down and there was no more sort of therapy to be done. But before that, in Victoria, a guy, the guy who you were referring to before, Tim, a guy called Howard Whitaker became the Victorian government's advisor on LSD-assisted therapy when the substance was still legal for therapy. Right. So he, he was advising the government on who in Victoria in the psychiatrist community could be administering it, where to get it from, which was the Sandoz lab in Switzerland, and how much to bring in and how to distribute it. And he was a cult member. Was LSD being administered to people in the cult more generally to help control them? Yeah, so Howard got himself a licence and a couple of other cult psychiatrists a licence. They had this building in Kew, which was a psychiatric hospital, which was owned by the family, owned by the cult, and compliant GPs or naive GPs would refer patients with depression, anxiety, any PTSD, any kind of any kind of mental disorder to to this place. They get in there and they find that it's a sort of cult recruiting center. The psychiatrists that were working there were licensed by the government through Howard cult member to use LSD on patients. But they were also funneling this high strength liquid LSD up to the Dandenongs for cult use. They were also into mushrooms as well, psilocybin. She she used it just to control people and to as a sort of mind control and brainwashing sort of tool. With the children as well? She'd give them acid or uh, mushrooms? At 14, they were able to be dosed and most of them were dosed at that point in dark rooms, blindfolded for hours and hours where she and others would enter the room and get in their heads. It's extraordinarily evil, isn't it? What was in it for the other enablers? I mean, they they were part of the cult. I guess there can be naive medical practitioners who thought, well, I could refer my patient to this place. They seem to get good results. It's sort of avant-garde therapy, as it were. But did the enablers also profit financially from what she was doing? Do you know? Not really. They seemed to lose more than they gained, to be honest with you. And I think and I think what it was was just to be in the sort of inner circle of this sort of secret, sort of elitist sort of group. So for example, the real estate agent who enabled property purchases up in the Dandenongs and stuff, he he, as far as I know, didn't get anything out of it. 
the lawyer didn't get anything out of it at all. I mean, except except he was sort of so enamoured with her and so wanting to belong to the group. So it was all about the power of her personality. Power of her personality, the power of the LSD. And group dynamics. Mm. The group dynamics, the the secrecy, which which was we're special and no one else mm-hmm. knows about us. And so can you talk us through how we went from her being extradited back to Australia to face these very low-level charges to her ending her days in and basically a care facility for the for the aged what happened in between well she disappeared for a while she sort of retreated up to the dandenongs and kept quiet for a while after she was extradited with all the media attention and the the victims survivors talking about what happened her support base dropped away so she she over the period of a few years she was left with just a very sort of inner circle. So she couldn't hold big meetings anymore in their lodge. As far as we could gather, she just sort of preached to the converted who were an increasingly small number of people. Um, then she got sick. Her third husband died. The children were now adults. Her support base dropped away, but they had extraordinary amounts of money at this point and there were property deals done to hide the wealth. There was a bogus charity set up, which still exists, to funnel the money through a a tax-free religious charity to protect the money. Her her, uh, three of her adult followers moved into a big mansion in, in the Dandenongs. It just sort of reduced right down to the sort of right down to this to the very inner circle with no new recruits no sort of big meetings certainly no stealing children no more LSD it just sort of dwindled away except for this quite active money trail in the background which is sort of where I came in and how do the the victims of this cult feel now that this is in essence over she is deceased like they never saw justice. She never faced charges for what happened to them. How are they coping now, so many years later? Yeah, so mixed results there. Obviously, Sarah sadly died, I think we can say, purely as purely as a result of her experiences. Her life would have been completely different if she hadn't been tied up in this. Some are doing quite well. Some are doing not so well. Mixed results. But yeah, I'm in touch with with a couple still, and they're they're doing pretty good. Um, Leanne and I catch up a couple of times a year. She's doing the best she can. There was a class action a couple of years ago where a group were paid money, which helped. They're pretty happy that she's dead. They're disturbed that some of the properties up in the hills are still there because they're sort of haunted, aren't they? They're they're kind of haunt, haunted places. But really, the the the, the survivors I know just want to do a better job with their own children and just be decent, loving parents. Those children who were stolen, forged adoptions and so on, if you know, did any of those ever um, get to meet their birth parents, their birth mother, natural fathers? Yeah, yeah, some have, some haven't. Some couldn't find them, but some some could and, and managed to reunite with them. Um, certainly young well, he's not so young now, but a fella called Adam Lancaster, who was deeply involved and was incredibly helpful 
putting the book together. He's found his family. He's spending time with them. So yes and no is the answer to that. But adoption was sort of a central theme as well to this because, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there were there were increasingly more rights given to adopted children to be able to retrace where they came from. And, and there was also um, much more freedom given to women to have their children adopted out. So as people were granted more freedoms, that this this was sort of happening at the same time, and certainly adoption and adoption rights because it was 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 a was a big theme of this story. I think it's an extraordinary tale, and what strikes me is it's still alive and kicking. She's dead, but her legacy lives on in so many different ways. Oh yeah, so many damaged people. Two or three generations now of families who are touched and damaged by this. People who have not been able to get their lives back, people who have had to struggle and struggle and struggle just to just to get a little bit back. Because the main thing for these kids who were taken was the loss of identity, I think. So they were they were they were literally stolen from hospitals. They were given different names. They were put in a family situation which was not their family. They were told that certain people were their mothers their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, whatever, and they and they weren't. And in 87, when they were, were released, that was just the, the start of the journey for a lot of them because the question is, well, who am I? You know, what's my name? You know, that's, simple that's question like that. That's pretty fundamental, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. What, who, what's, what's my, my name? name? Who's my dad? Who's my mum? Where, where do I come from? How my life might have been so different. Yeah, had, but I mean that, 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 that period of recovery was extremely difficult and in fact for 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 several of them it did them in that period of recovery because those questions were too too big too big when you say did them in they suicided no no just um psychologically them, yeah affected them psychologically in a way that they couldn't have that couldn't have foreseen you know if they 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 came from a really bad situation into another situation which was supposed to be better, but it was actually really, really difficult. Yeah, because I guess with the bad situation, there was some structure and predictability around it and an identification as a family member, and that's taken away from you, thank goodness. But what are you left with? A vacuum. If you don't know anything about your origin, um, you know nothing about your family, an extremely difficult proposition to negotiate. That's it. Well, I think that was a that's an incredible story, isn't it? And I think particularly as you said because she's a woman, that gives it a different a different edge because it's so rare when it comes to cults. And I think it, it is important to remember the survivors of this and recognize the ongoing impacts that it has on them and ultimately their relationships with their children and grandchildren and the intergenerational trauma and damage that will be caused in essence by one woman. You know, it's quite extraordinary in terms of what impact that can have, the damage that can be caused. One woman and a Praetorian guard around her. The thing I find extraordinary is that these cults continue to pop up mm. um, for various reasons. And um, the red flags are interesting. People claiming to be a deification or a manifestation of Christ, all knowledge, 
better life in the future, put up with the crap now, and isolation and mind control. And in this case, obviously using drugs to achieve that end on top of the psychological tools that we used, very similar to the things that were going on with the Moonies through my discussions with Evelyn Einstein. If you isolate people for long enough, they have no reference points and they become extremely vulnerable to the solicitations and, dare I say, it, bullshit of others. Yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 she's almost, she's, she's, she's a classic cult leader. The only difference is that she's a woman mm. and there's not, ma- mm. there's not many of them. But if you look at the sort of characteristics of, of successful cult leaders, by successful I mean people who were able to successfully form a group like this and gain wealth and control over people, if you look at those sort of landing points, then you can tick them all for her. Yeah, fascinating story. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been, you know, I knew the basics of the case, but I think, you know, that kind of deep dive into it has really certainly brought me new insights. So thank you so much for your time today, Chris. That was that was really fascinating. I'll echo that. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been a fascinating discussion. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Wasn't Chris a fabulous uh, person to talk to about cults in general and the family specifically? Well-researched book and right across his subject matter. Yeah, and I find cults fascinating, not only because of the cult leader and the charisma and all of the other traits that go with that, ultimately the psychopathy and the narcissism and all the things that combine in these individuals that become cult leaders, but I also find it amazing the people they recruit, the cult members. And I think he spoke really, really interestingly around that and these highly professional people who she recruited as enablers to allow her to to enact this premeditated plan to kind of collect these children around her. I was interested in her journey from childhood. Her mother was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, although not articulated, clearly emotional abuse goes on in these homes because they're mercurial. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lack of structure. And how she managed to get away from that and with the passage of time inveigle her way into the higher echelons of Melbourne society. A professor of physics, a psychiatrist who is legally prescribing LSD, a lawyer, and then real estate agents, and they had quite an effective team in terms of what she was doing. Uh, And she became a person of notoriety and considerable influence and status in Melbourne back in the day. And ultimately, these kind of situations are a product of their kind of time and space and her personality and what was going on in the kind of counterculture and all of that around Melbourne at the time obviously fed into her success in becoming a cult leader. But ultimately we see this again and again. You know, we've seen other cults develop in Australia and overseas and it's not unheard, you know, we quite regularly hear in the media about a new one that's been discovered. And I think that that in itself is interesting that we recognise the red flags and, and yet these people are still rising, rising to prominence in societies. Well, and probably more so when times are uncertain and troubled, like the world at the moment. People need something to look to, to believe in. To believe in. And they are and quasi-religions. promise of a better life. Promise of a better life. The interesting thing with these people, her included, is claiming that they're part of the deity. She said Mm. that she was the manifestation of Jesus Christ and people believed her. They wanted to believe it because of 
their own psychological vulnerabilities. She's not the first. She's the only woman I'm aware of who's been so successful in this regard. And we're going to pick up a lot of those, I think, core themes in the next episode when we really look at cults on a, a kind of broader footing, um, who are lulled into, you know, the security of the cults, who need the cults, um, and looking at different cults and the similarities and differences to the family. So that's on the next episode of Motive and Method. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet, and we'll be back next week with a new episode.
that we've recognised the red flags in, and yet these people are still rising, rising to prominence in societies. Well, and probably more so when times are uncertain and troubled, like the world at the moment. People need something to look to, to believe in. To believe in and, they are and promise of a better life. Promise of a better life. <clears throat> the interesting thing with these people, her included, is uh, claiming that they're part of the deity. She said mm. that she was the manifestation of Jesus Christ and people believed her. They wanted to believe it because of their own psychological vulnerabilities. She's not the first. She's the only woman I'm aware of who's been so successful in this regard. And we're going to pick up a lot of those, I think, core themes in the next episode when we really look at cults on a, a kind of broader footing, um, who are lulled into, you know, the security of the cults, who need the cults, um, and looking at different cults and the similarities and differences to the family. So that's on the next episode of Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you very much. Great. <clears throat>